Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn now to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Have a word of prayer. Our Father, we have begun this evening in prayer. We continued in songs of worship and praise and intermittent prayers. Even silent prayers were uttered among some in this congregation during that time of worship. And now we pray again. We know that our worship doesn't end, but it continues as we give you our attention, our focus, our minds, and the best part of ourselves to receive the Word of God now to study the Bible. It's part of our worship that we render to you. We love your word. We love what it does in our lives. And we pray that it would transform us. That this would be yet another installment in learning more about you, in learning about the kind of relationship you desire with people, in getting insight into the characteristics of your nature. All that that would lead to a deeper relationship that we have with you. Thank you that Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay for our sins and that we can be your children by that simple act of faith. And now, Lord, I pray we'd grow, grow deeper, walk further. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a weird story today. A story about a dog that gave its owner the Heimlich maneuver. (laughs) Sounds suspicious, doesn't it? Well, that's how a lot of people think about Jonah. It sounds suspicious, but let me tell you about this story. It was in the newspaper, not our newspaper, but a newspaper from Maryland. It seems that a 45-year-old woman by the name of Debbie Parkhurst was eating an apple, and she got a slice stuck in her throat. And she was coughing, choking, couldn't get it out. She said she put her arms around her like this and tried to give herself the Heimlich maneuver unsuccessfully. Her two-year-old dog, Toby, golden retriever, was watching this whole thing. She collapsed to the ground. And then she says, Toby, the dog, with his paws, pulled her shoulders down and began jumping on top of her chest which dislodged the apple. In fact, she says she has bruises on her chest that looks like paw prints. So it's the first time I ever heard of a dog giving a human the Heimlich maneuver. But it's in the paper, so it's got to be true. (laughs) Well, we know that's not true, but it's in the Bible. The story of Jonah, it does have to be true, and Jesus said it was true. But you know, if you think about it, just like that dog saved that woman's life, a whale saved Jonah's life. He might have perceived it as, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble, this is not good, when in actuality, God put him in solitary confinement to preserve his life and barfed it up on shore, him, Jonah, back on shore, and gave him a second chance. And we're going to see that tonight. To me, this is the most incredible part of the book. 
I was out in Southern California, as I mentioned. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evening, I spoke at what was called the Big Tent Revival. Now, what what Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa did is they put up a big tent in the place where the original tent was 34 years ago. Now, the original tent was a temporary shelter for that church while they built their church facilities. And it was just cool for a long period of time to meet in that tent and experience just about every night of the week people coming to Christ. Well, since they had to remodel the sanctuary, the meeting place there, they decided let's make it not a negative but a positive experience. So instead of Pastor Chuck Smith saying, well, we're remodeling the sanctuary, we have to meet out in the tent for a while, he said, hey, we're going to meet out in the tent and we're going to have so much fun and every night of the week bring a friend, we'll have special music and guest speakers. And it was reminiscent of a revival that happened years ago. But... What we're about to read in chapter 3 of Jonah, and hopefully we're going to finish chapter 3 and 4, just a few verses. We'll find the greatest revival in history. In fact, nothing in history can compare to the kind of revival that we'll read about here tonight. You could think of all of the great revivals in history. You could think of a few yourselves. Maybe the Great Reformation or the Great Awakening or Dwight L. Moody's revivals or um, Billy Sunday or we would point to Billy Graham. In fact, Billy Graham, it is said, has spoken to more people on earth, preached the gospel to more people on earth than anyone else in history, including Jesus. Two million conversions occurred with the ministry of Billy Graham over his career. But usually at Graham Crusades, salvations are measured in terms of percentages. A typical good crusade would be 5% of the crowd receiving Christ. A really good crusade would be 10%. In Nineveh, it was 100%. The Bible tells us of the most incredible revival. And this is... The greatest miracle of the book. It's funny, when you deal with skeptics over the book of Jonah, they think about one thing, which is the whale. Well, it's just that's so outlandish and so impossible. Hey, you know what? You ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, what happens in Nineveh is unheard of, unparalleled, unbelievable. And yet it's what we're about to read beginning in chapter 3. A word about revivals. There are a few conditions for a revival to work. Number one, you need a messenger. Jonah is the messenger, though he's very reluctant. Number two, you need a message. The messenger needs a message. And Jonah has a message, one that God told him to speak. Now, it's not very impressive of a message. It's not very long. It's not outlined. There's no real illustrations in it, no points. It's very short. Eight words to be exact. But there is a messenger and there is a message and you need another condition. You need a mess. And boy, was Nineveh a mess. But if you can take a mess 
and insert a messenger with a message, you have the right conditions for revival. And so let's take a look at Jonah chapter 3. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. Chapter 3 opens up similar to chapter 1, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's how the book opens. The book sort of reopens after the episode of the whale by saying, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying. When I read that first verse, I am struck by how gracious our God is. He's the God of the second chance, a second commission. Not only is Jonah forgiven, but Jonah is commissioned a second time. What if you were God and you had to deal with Jonah? How would you treat Jonah? It's good that we're not God. We might say, Jonah, you've blown it. Go home, clean the vomit off, and stay there. I'm done with you. How can you call yourself a prophet? I'm going to find someone who's really obedient and open. But the word of the Lord came a second time. It reminds me of Peter. Peter denied his Lord. Peter said, I don't even know him, and publicly denounced Christ. And probably Peter thought, it's all over. There's no way. Not only is my chance for being used by God over, but this whole thing I've believed in is over since Jesus died. But then after the resurrection, I don't think Peter had a whole lot of hope in him being used a second time. But we get to John chapter 21, where Jesus has this little meeting with his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And Peter's there. He's probably very timid. And Jesus turns to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? And he probably thought, oh no. I said that I loved him more than anyone else and I blew it. He's going to really lay it on thick. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Still cringing. Peter heard the most gracious response, feed my lambs. Whoa. Did I, did I hear what I just thought I heard? Is he commissioning me again to get involved and deal with his sheep, his lambs? And Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then tend my sheep. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Just in case he was ambivalent about being used again, Jesus gave it to him three times because Peter denied him three times. Recommissioned a brand new chance to be used by God. Jonah gets a second chance. However, that's the good news. I want to flip the coin now. The bad news is that Jonah started here right where he started to begin with. He didn't gain any ground disobeying God. In fact, he wasted a lot of time 
And I think he is altered in his appearance, as I'll discuss in a moment, because of the episode in the whale. He has to start in the same place because he is vomited up on the land and the commission comes and he has to go to Nineveh. The only place there's land where there would be a whale would be the Mediterranean, the coast of Israel. That's where he started. He still has to take that 500-mile walk to Nineveh. So he hasn't really gained anything. In fact, he's lost time. Now, that's how it is when we disobey God. Will He give us a chance? Yes. Will we waste time? Yes. And we have to learn the lesson. So whatever you're going through tonight, and God's trying to teach you certain things, maybe you're a little more stubborn than others, please, for your own sake, learn the lesson. It's sort of like school. You don't get to the next grade till you pass this grade. You know, they keep you there until you make it through and you succeed. I mean, how would you like to take sophomore English again and again and again and again? Forget it. You know, people say, boy, wouldn't it be great to be young again and back in high school? No! I don't want to take those courses all over again. Jonah's back to square one. So the commission. Arise and go to Nineveh that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, finally some cooperation, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. Just for a moment, put yourself in Jonah's sandals. If you were to approach the city of Nineveh, you would see a wall that archaeologists tell us was a hundred feet high. Massive. It was wide enough on the top of the wall that three chariots could hold chariot races, three abreast. Fifteen gates would bring you into this city. And above each gate was inscribed the name of one of the gods of the Assyrians. There were also towers that were every so often on the wall, towers for guarding it. And they say, archaeologists tell us, that the towers could have been as tall as 200 feet. So imagine a 100-foot wall, and then uh, above that, they were good at building the ziggurat, those tall towers. Above that, another 100 feet, these huge towers. Very impressive. Very intimidating. Then it says it was a great city, three days journey um, in extent. The city of Nineveh was uh, 19 miles in diameter. Okay, now, there is an archaeologist, and if you want to do some digging on this, his name is C.F. Kyle. And C.F. Kyle, an Old Testament archaeologist, tells us that it's not one city, but ancient Nineveh was... um, a conglomeration of four cluster cities clustered, gathered together on the Tigris River. The wall went around these four cities, merged into what we would call Greater Metro Nineveh. And the diameter was 19 miles. The circumference of the city was 60 miles. Now, the average journey by foot in those days was 20 miles. You could walk 20 miles. That would be a day's journey. That's a long walk. So it would take, at 20 miles a day, 
three days to get around the city. And it tells us here, even as C.F. Kyle would tell us, that it was a three days journey in extent. There were at least 600,000, if not more, as a population base of greater Metro Nineveh. I know that from chapter 4, verse 11, where we are told by God that there were 120,000 little ones, little kids, those who couldn't discern their right from their left hand. So with 120,000 young children, there were at least 600,000, maybe more, maybe up to a million people who lived there. A great city, as the verse tells us. Verse 4, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out, and he said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's got to be the shortest sermon on record. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. There's something powerful about simplicity. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, Skip, you ought to take some of your cues from Jonah. You know, he really shortened it up. Well, maybe I will. But you can just imagine what it would be like. You'd have to imagine. And probably this message wasn't given once, but he repeated it everywhere, everywhere he went. Down one corridor, down another corridor, down one of the souk, the shopping areas, the streets, the plazas. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then shouting up to the wall, yet 40 days, and Nineveh just repeating that sermon over and over again until a strange silence fell on the city. Jonah would have seen altars and shrines and temples to the gods of the heavens that were worshipped. The sun, the moon, the stars, Dagon, the fish god that the Philistines later worshipped, and before that, the Ninevites worshipped. And look what happened. So the people of Nineveh believed God proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in the ashes. I wonder what you think about what we just read. So far, I think you'll admit, this is the greatest miracle in the book. Forty days, Nineveh will be toast or overthrown. My paraphrase. Forty days, and yet Nineveh will be overthrown. He keeps saying that, and people believe God, repent, put on sackcloth and ashes as a symbol of their repentance. The whole city, from the greatest, the king, down to the very least. Some of you may think, Come on. That just doesn't happen. I've read about prophets in the Bible. Jeremiah, no one listened to him. Other prophets, maybe a few, but by and large, people really didn't respond well to prophetic messengers. And you're telling me this guy with the shortest message, a guy who didn't even like the Ninevites, wanted them to be destroyed, he gets all the results? The question is why, and I don't know that I can adequately answer why. But let me give you a hint, if I can. 
In Luke chapter 11, Jesus said something interesting about Nineveh and Jonah. He said, Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites. It's not that he showed signs, or he predicted signs, or he performed signs. Jonah himself became a sign. What does that mean? Well, from the few, and some are questionable, records we have of things, men, creatures, sea lions, etc., being in the gullet, the stomach of a whale or a great fish, they tell us that the skin would be completely bleached white. So imagine, the hair would be completely burned off. So whatever Jonah looked like before, he's now completely bald. His skin is bleached very white and looks parchment-like. White I mean, sort of like a recycled Michael Jackson. That's the picture, at least in my mind, that, that, that comes to my mind. I do that when I read the Bible. I think of things that I might... Maybe that didn't help. Now, for a man who has been scorched by the gastric juices of a sea creature, bleached white, coming into town like this guy... That would have been a sign. Especially since these guys believed in one of the gods, the god Dagon, who was the sea god in charge of of, uh, the storms of the sea. And no doubt they heard about Jonah. And this guy survived the wrath of Dagon, that great storm that happened in the Mediterranean Sea. And here he is to live to tell about it. Some scholars believe that Jonah did not survive in the belly of the great fish. One explanation is that he died, was puked up on the land, rose from the dead, God resurrected him, and that was the sign to the people of Nineveh. Certainly that's possible. For Jesus pointed to Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. So just like Jonah was, so will the Son of Man be. That's a possible explanation. But for whatever reason, he was the sign. And he gave that short message. But there's something else. Here's one of the keys, I think, to why he was effective. If you go back to verse 2, God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. The key to an effective ministry, to an effective evangelist, or effective Bible teacher, is bringing the message of the Lord. Not adding to it, not taking away from it, but preaching, teaching the Word of God. Preach the Word, the whole Word, nothing but the Word. That is the key to success. One of the reasons it was effective is Jonah said what God told him to say. And I wish more movements, more churches more denominations, would take a cue from God and Jonah. We have a whole Bible here. We have 66 books. You'll never run out of material. Again, it took me 14 years to cover every verse of the Bible. 
So it's not like I have to come up with something clever and something new and add. You don't need to add to it. In fact, that's where you will take away its effectiveness. I think of the Church of England. If you ever make it to England, go to an Anglican church on a Sunday morning. You'll find a few every now and then that are revived and strong, but they will be so rare. You will typically find a large building, a massive cathedral with a lot of seats in it, 99.9% of them are empty. You might find uh, an auditorium with a thousand seats and have 10 or 12 up front. That's it. The Archbishop of Canterbury at one time, George Carey, said of the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church has become an old lady muttering platitudes through teethless gums. What a description. No bite. Just People come and listen to nothing. No word from the Lord. No prophetic revelation. Humanism. Platitudes. Growth comes from the message. Change comes from the message of the word. Jonah gave God's word. The king repented. He was very overt about it. He humbled himself, took off these royal robes, put on sackcloth and ashes. So here's a king who's not ashamed to show publicly that he has repented. Now there's something to that. People might ask, why do you call people forward at an altar call? Why do you make it so public? Why don't you just let them bow their heads and pray right there? Well, they can do that, and certainly that is viable. You might also ask the question, why did Jesus so often publicly call people? Like Matthew at the tax office booth. Matthew, get up. Follow me. Get up right now in front of all these people. Let's go. There's something good about making a public demonstration of following Christ. It does two things. Number one, it does something for you, in you. Settling, sealing, making a break. And it also is a good witness for people who are watching. Look at that. I remember that dude from high school. What a gnarly guy he was. He's going forward. Man, if God can change him, he can change anybody. Maybe I ought to go. So the king publicly did this. Now listen to his State of the Union message. He says, verse 7, He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them drink, eat or drink water. But let man and beast Be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. This is an interesting decree. Not just people, but, you know, your horses, your pets, stray dogs. I mean, everybody. No food. No water. Put sackcloth and ashes on those pets. Verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He said He would bring upon them. He did not do it. Are we to think by that verse that they were saved by their works? 
It says God saw their works and he relented from the disaster. Are they saved by their works? Not at all. They're saved by their faith. As it says in verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God. Notice what they did. They believed. That's inward. They repented and demonstrated their repentance outwardly by the sackcloth, the ashes, the public sorrow, and the change of their lives. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. So God spared Nineveh. And history shows us that for the next 100 years, until the year 612 B.C., Nineveh thrived untouched. 612 B.C., they were going back to their old ways, their old idolatry. God judged them through the Babylonians, Nabopolassar and the the Medo, uh, not the Medo, but the Medes, uh, collaborated with the Babylonians and destroyed the city. But God relented from the disaster that he had said that he would bring upon them. He did not do it. This illustrates a principle that we know quite well from the New Testament. God loves to forgive people. God loves to show mercy. Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God loves it when he sees uh, an honest contrition in the heart of a human being. It's like he's waiting to forgive. And when the person says, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. It's like, ah, here goes the blessing. He loves to do that. He loves to demonstrate mercy. There's a story about a father and a son from Spain who had a falling out. An argument and then a falling out. Finally, the young man decided to leave home because he had a fight with his father one night and his father was brokenhearted over this breach in their relationship. He searched high and low for his son. Finally, he took out an ad in the newspaper in Madrid, Spain, saying, Dear son, I love you. All is forgiven. Please come home. I'll meet you tomorrow at 12 noon in front of the newspaper office in Madrid, Spain. The next day at 12 noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos. That was the boy's name. 800 young men named Paco, all seeking forgiveness from their father. We want forgiveness, and especially we want it from God. And God is anxious to give that. So it pleased the Lord to forgive the Ninevites. But watch verse 1 of chapter 4. But, it's not a good word to begin with after God's grace is poured out. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. What a contrast between God and his prophet. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jonah is willing that everybody should perish and no one should come to repentance. Can you see the difference? Here's a man who knew the truth. Here's a man who knew God's character. And yet here's a man who did not live under the sway and influence of that very truth that he knew. 
Did you know that the South Pole is probably the healthiest place to live on the face of the earth? It's a place that has no pollution, no dust, virtually no germs to speak of. It's a place that is not bombarded by germs. Winds begin at the South Pole and move northward. So if there were any germs or pollution, they would be quickly taken away. It's the healthiest place to live on the face of the earth. So if that's the case, why don't people move there? I mean, if it's so healthy, there's a lot of health nuts out there. So why don't they all flock there? There's very few people that even live there, and most of them are scientists who do research. Well, the answer is obvious. It's cold. It's stinking cold. I mean, it gets down to 100 degrees below zero. That's a good day. There's people like that. Truth cannot survive around them. They can spot error so quickly, and they'll jump on top of it and clean the environment of any false doctrine. But they're so cold to be around, so harsh. Jonah knew the truth. He was so harsh, so difficult to be with. So it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now look at verse 2. He's praying. So he prayed to the Lord. And he said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know, and I can see him gritting his teeth, I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, oh please Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. What's up with this dude? He quotes almost verbatim Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, where God introduces himself to Moses. You remember that story? He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, extending mercy to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression. It's the same concept, and he's probably paraphrasing that very verse. He's saying, God, I know all about you. I know your character. And that's why I didn't want to take this job to begin with. When I was back at home, I was wanting to leave well enough alone. I know that you love people. And you're merciful to people. And you'll forgive creeps. The very people I hate, you'll forgive. I don't like you for that. It displeased him exceedingly. And he even praises to the Lord. You've got to admit he's honest. And then he finally says, Lord, I just want to die. Take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Question. Why... Is Jonah so bent out of shape over forgiveness and revival? Answer. Because Jonah did what God wanted him to do. But God didn't do what Jonah wanted God to do. That's why. These were weird expectations Jonah had. Okay, I'll obey you. I don't want to be fish bait anymore. Here it goes. He walks through the city. Forty days, and you're going to be 
toast. And you know he said it with a smile. (laughs) 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He couldn't wait. Until there was mass repentance and God decided to forgive them all. Then he got, oh, I knew it. I did exactly what you wanted me to do, but you didn't do exactly what I wanted you to do. What did he want God to do? He wanted barbecue Ninevites. He wanted charbroiled Ninevites. He didn't get that. He wanted judgment. He wanted the overthrow that he predicted. Doom. But there's the character of God shining through. And Jonah goes, I knew it. My worst nightmare. You're so good. (laughs) Then the Lord said, now you'll notice something toward the end of this book. God asks stimulating questions, provocative questions to the prophet. He wants Jonah to assess his feeling, his sentiment, his anger. And like a good listener, like a good counselor, he's going to ask some probing questions to show how whacked Jonah is in his thinking. Here's the first question. Is it right for you to be angry? It's a good question. Here's God, pleased to forgive, willing to abate his anger and show kindness. And here's a prophet, angry. Mad, wanting death. Hey, Jonah, compare your attitude and my attitude. Which do you think is the proper perspective? Is it right for you to be angry? There is an unfortunate twist to our human nature. You want to know how perverted we can become? We can get so perverted in our thinking and our feelings toward people that if we observe somebody else being blessed, more so than we're being blessed, we don't take to it too kindly. We complain. Oh, we might not complain to the face of the person being blessed, but inwardly, God, you bless that person. Like, I'd like to be blessed too. Oh, example. Let's say you have a car. It's a beater. You've prayed long and hard for a new one. God has not seen fit to allow that to happen yet. Somebody comes up to you Wednesday night after the study in the book of Jonah and says, Hey, rejoice with me, brother, sister. God gave me a new, new, brand new car today. How are you going to react? Oh, praise God. (laughs) Hallelujah. Now, Paul said, weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. The first part comes pretty easy. Second part's tough. I find it easy to weep with those that weep. After all, I'm not going through it. They are. I've got this condition. Oh, brother, sister. You know, we all do that, right? We want to empathize, sympathize, put our arms around, pray for. But... If somebody else is blessed exceedingly more than we are being blessed, we feel like God has shortchanged us. We get angry. It's just a twisted, perverse part of human nature. So, after the question, obviously he didn't answer it. You know, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? (laughs) 
He didn't, he didn't answer it. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, and he sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. Okay, God didn't destroy it. I know he's gracious. But I'm going to wait this time, 40 days. I'm going to just see, you know, maybe they'll get bad again. Oh, Lord, just make them bad. Maybe sin will come back into that town. Maybe God will destroy him. He's watching. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. What a gracious God he serves. There's that bleached, bald-headed prophet out there. And it's pretty hot and bright. I'm going to supernaturally cause a plant to grow quickly and give him shade. That's wonderful. That's the kind of grace that ought to cause Jonah to say, Oh, Lord, you're so good to me. How come I can't? You've just given me a miracle, another one. Certainly I can see how you'd want to forgive them. Now, we don't know, but probably this is the castor bean plant. Uh, the ricinus, something or other. Is, I forget the Latin derivation. But they can grow quickly in hot climates. Ricinus communis, it's called. It can grow quickly in, in, in warm climates and grow rapidly and wither quickly. Now, this is supernatural. God seemingly caused this thing to grow quickly. And look at this. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. This is the first time we read about the prophet getting excited about anything in the whole book. Now, I want you just to think about this. When God gave him the commission the first time in chapter 1, go to Nineveh, was he happy about that? Uh-uh. He went the other direction. When there was a storm on the sea, was he happy about that? No. When he got thrown overboard, he wasn't happy. When a whale swallowed him, he wasn't too stoked about that either. And he wasn't happy to go to Nineveh the second time by his response. The only time recorded in the book when Jonah gets happy, and I think it's, it's very descriptive in Hebrew. I may be mistaken, Avi, but I think it's Samach Gadol. It's this, yeah, joy, is when a weed grows up. <sighs> I'm so happy for this weed. This guy's whacked. Don't you think? He's a little weird. He's really happy because of a weed. That's strange. He was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and so it damaged the plant that it withered. Why? Because the only thing that makes him happy isn't forgiving God forgiving 600,000 people, but a little weed. So let's, let's kill the weed. And it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself. And he said, it's better for me to die than live. I don't think I'd like to be around Jonah. <laughs> Solomon said, a broken spirit dries up the bones. There are some people who make life all about them to the extent that nothing else matters but them and their personal comfort 
And they're always, they always see bad in everything. And just to be around them, it's just misery. It just dries everything up. And Jonah's in that position. When you forget the mercy and compassion of God, when you lose sight of the gracious nature of God toward others and toward yourself, you're miserable. You're tough to live with. Jonah's out there, gets a plant. We die, I would die. Oh, please. Now another question. God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Okay, (laughs) I love his answer. He said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. Really? Really? It's it's angry to want to die over that. Okay. But the Lord said, you have had pity on a plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow. It came up in a night, it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? Do you see the logic in the question? It's pretty apparent. Jonah, think about this. You are... You are more concerned about a soulless plant and your own comfort than the eternal comfort of a population base of at least 600,000 people. You are more concerned about you, your temporary feeling of comfort, your emotional well-being, and you don't even care about the people eternally perishing around you. And can you see how that principle can apply to us? You know, we can get concerned about our plants, our gourds, as the King James puts it, our comfort. And we forget about the people that are around us on a daily basis who don't know the Lord. Somebody once said, America is full of millions of people who are walking conversions. They're conversions, he said, waiting to happen. And if we were to just say, you know, I'm going to take a step out here and just talk to a few people and see if maybe the Lord would open up their hearts, because that really is more important than my own personal temporary comfort. It does also bring up an issue of um, values. Have you ever met a person who cares more about non-persons than persons, plants and animals than people, animal rights than people's rights? I've always found it interesting and sometimes humorous in how people treat their pets and would in some cases be much more concerned about their pet than a, than a human being. People marching for animal rights. Hey, if the animals are so great, let them march for their rights. <laughs> I'm not down on animals, believe me. I, I love them. I, I have a dog too, and I treat my dog, in some cases, almost human-like. 
But if we place the emphasis on the animal over the human, or in this case, the plant over the human, aren't those weird, whacked, wrong, upside-down values? Yes, that was the point God was trying to get across to Jonah. So, a revival in Nineveh. Unfortunately, there wasn't a revival in Jonah. What if you would have been Jonah and you would have seen these people turn to God? I, I know what you do. I know you. You get so excited. You, you'd come back if, if just a, a small percentage in Nineveh turned to the Lord. Skip, you wouldn't believe. I went to Nineveh last week and I shared about Jesus and, you know, a hundred people came to faith. Wow! You'd be excited. It would revive you. It didn't revive the prophet. One of the ancient, ancient, old revivalists, Gypsy Smith, called that because he was traveling with gypsies when he was a young boy in London, came under the preaching of William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, and this young boy came to faith in Christ, and Gypsy Smith became an evangelist, traveled through England and the United States and preached the gospel. Somebody asked him one time, how do you start a revival? He said, this is how you do it. Now follow me carefully because it will work. Guaranteed. Go inside your room, close the door, kneel on the floor, get a piece of chalk and draw a circle around yourself. And then put the chalk down and begin to pray that God would revive everything on the inside of the circle. When your prayers are answered, revival is on. Because if you're revived, you'll see it around you. People will see your excitement, your joy, your belief in the truth. And your revival will spurn that in the lives of others. It's unfortunate that there wasn't really a revival in Jonah. But it did happen around him on the outside. In closing tonight, are there danger signs in your own life? Can you look back, like the church of Ephesus, where Jesus said, I have something against you. You have left your first love. Can you look back to a time when you were more in love with Jesus, more excited about His Word, more excited about worship? I remember the first time I heard authentic worship. It was in that tent. I walked in and I went, Wow, man, this, this church is different. In fact, I, I think they built it just for me. I dig it. I love it. That was at first. I couldn't get enough of it. But then as time wore on, something interesting happened inside me, and the Lord pointed it out. Those songs that I was once excited about, I started having a critical spirit toward. They didn't do that song right. Boy, that's too loud. I don't like it. Oh, like they got it all wrong. Or, boy, we hear that one a lot. Or, we don't hear the other one enough. And it's, it's the Lord nailed me. Hey, who is this about? You or me? You can sing any song as a love song to the Lord. Take that one and use it. Is it possible that tonight you're looking back to a time in your life where the fire burned more brightly? It's waning now. Sort of like a marriage. 
You know, marriages don't disintegrate overnight. There's an erosion process. It's a long period of time. I've often wondered at the couple that I sat across from before their marriage who had little goo-goo eyes and twinkles when they looked at each other and little (laughs) cute little laughs and only to sit across from them a couple years later and they... (laughs) What happened? What happened to the young man who used to open the car door for that girl? Well, I still do. I just close it on her foot. See, that's not good. You used to buy her flowers at her funeral or buy her more. Not good. What happened? What happened is an erosion. Oh, sorry. (laughs) It's time to quit. Bible study's up. Some of you guys are getting ideas, and I can see it. Well, in our relationship with the Lord... It's the slow leak that I'm worried about, not the blowout. That slow leak, those issues that aren't addressed, those paper-thin cuts to your soul over a long period of time that render you calloused. If there is that at all in your heart tonight, this is the night to ask God to revive you. If God revives you, this Sunday morning's message will be brand new to you, exciting to you. The worship will be like heaven to you because God revived our hearts. You know, we could come on a Wednesday night and we could say, should be more people here. Where are they? It's not my concern. I'm not called to preach to empty seats, but the ones that have people in it. Here we are. Here are our hearts. Lord, revive us. Guarantee you, if he just... Look at what he did with 12 disciples. Turn the world upside down, right side up. If he answers our prayer and we get revived, this town will know about it. Our Heavenly Father... This man, Jonah, knew so much Bible, so much about your character. But he reacted against it. He didn't live in the gracious truth of your character. In fact, he fought against it. And Lord, we understand that being exposed to Bible truth is no guarantee that we live it. And not just those who occupy pews, but those who occupy pulpits, for Jonah was a prophet. So, Lord, we pray that you'd begin with our heart on the inside of this make-believe circle of chalk. Revive the inside, Lord. Revive our hearts. If we've grown callous, help us to identify it and to return to our first love, to remember from where we have fallen, to repent, to do our first works again. Lord, I thank you for your people who have gathered tonight, so many of them here, so excited about worship, so excited about your word. Lord, I pray that excitement will now spill out as we share with others. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.